welcome to Culture and Performance with Ben Ryan. Now, today's show is part two of my conversation with former Met Police Superintendent John Sutherland. Most of the great leaders I've ever come across, either in person or from afar, are the people who surround themselves with others who don't agree with them. The whole thing was playing out live on the rolling news channels, standing there thinking, I haven't got the faintest clue what I'm doing, and I haven't got the smallest idea about what to do next. Police officers during their working lives will encounter severe trauma on four to six hundred occasions, three or four times in an ordinary life, four to six hundred times in a policing life. From sieges that shut down London to the time he got things very wrong when communicating to his team and his own personal battle with his mental health, this is another cracking episode and we pick up from where we left off talking about leadership and perhaps its most important trait. I think one of the greatest and the most important lessons we can learn in life is the lesson of humility. I think some of the, no, I'll go further than that, I think most of the great leaders I've ever come across, either in person or from afar, are the people who surround themselves with others who don't agree with them, who see the world differently to them, who are prepared to challenge, fundamentally, I suppose, their ego. Because everybody involved in that relationship understands that there's a greater good in play. All of the best leaders understand that they don't have all the answers. Yeah, so I'm I'm a Liverpool supporter and I'm hopelessly in love with Jurgen Klopp. So I'm lacking any semblance of objectivity when it comes to him. But it's something I've heard him say on several occasions. You know, he he will very happily say, I don't know most of the answers to things, but what I do is surround myself with people who do. And he's forever talking about the collective. So if my ego is more precious to me than anything else, I'm going to struggle to make much headway as a leader. If I recognize that my ego is an important part of my makeup, but only one element of it, and if I'm mature enough and humble enough to recognize that sometimes I don't know best, and sometimes it would be better to ask a question than issue an order, then, you know, I may end up doing a little bit better than I would otherwise have done. I'd, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, a couple of separate occasions uh, in my career where I ended up commanding armed sieges once as an inspector on a relatively small scale, not that an armed siege could ever be small scale, once as a chief superintendent on a huge scale when we ended up shutting down what felt like half of central London. Uh, and in both of those cases, I was surrounded with far too many factors to fit into my small mind, uh, far too many variables and moving parts, and, and far too many areas of professional expertise, whether that be firearms or explosives or a thousand other things that just weren't within my kind of realm of experience. You know, if I'd stood there in the middle of those situations and thought, well, it's down to me to fix all of this, it could have gone horribly wrong. I mean, as it was, I remember very vividly in both cases that I'm thinking about having moments of standing right in the thick of these, you know, in the second case, the whole thing was playing out live on the rolling news channels, standing there thinking, I haven't got the faintest clue what I'm doing. And I haven't got the smallest idea about what to do next. But blimey, I'm surrounded by some extraordinary people who do. And I've got someone standing to my right from the bomb squad and someone to my left from the firearms teams. And over there's a traffic officer. And actually, I've got the fire brigade and the ambulance service here as well. And actually, between us, we might know what we're doing here. And between us, we 
might have a chance of sorting this out. And in the case that I'm thinking of, that was one of those extraordinary days where we got to the end of it all and everyone got to go home. In, in, well, the suspect got to go to jail, but, but he was unhurt, unharmed. And that was an extraordinary thing. But it was all about the collective. It was all about the team. My listeners would want to know more about this, John, because <laughs> you've opened the door on you know, a, a seas that shut down a large swathe of, of London. And I can also res- I can also think as a leader that you're effectively with that all those different departments that you're maximizing their impact and you're creating you're a weaver effectively you're weaving all those their skills so that you maximize the potential of of the group so that you can achieve what you want to achieve. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've I've often felt about leadership that right at the heart of the responsibilities I hold, you know, my job is to enable you to do your job to the very best of your ability. You know, I finished my policing career as a chief superintendent, but I've always maintained, and I still do, that the most important people in policing are the PCs and the DCs, the frontline constables. They are policing. And the whole of the rest of policing exists to support them in what they do. So as a borough commander, my job was to enable my people to do their jobs to the very best of their abilities. That's how I succeeded. Every time you put other people first, or at least that's what you aspire to do. Uh, and so, you know, on this particular day, and the, the, the Daily Telegraph the following day ran a picture on the front page, and they used the headline, The Siege of London. And the reason, of course, that very few people have ever heard about it is, is the fact that it ended peacefully, and everybody left in one piece. You know, had it gone wrong, I'm sure it would be otherwise. But it was a big deal. But I was surrounded by these extraordinary women and men who'd spent their professional lives training for moments exactly such as this. And in that late afternoon on Tottenham Court Road, all of that training and all of that experience came into play. And and by leaning on them, we succeeded. When you talk about your leadership, there's a theory called um, the bubble of optimism, where as you get promoted to higher levels, you feel like you're more approachable than you actually are and that people are getting on more underneath you better than they actually are. And I wonder, I wonder if, that, if any of that's anything that you thought about as you've become, you know, your leadership and you're still leading because you're, you know, the things that we've talked about, you're providing knowledge and wisdom and helping people have a voice. So wondering where that sits with you, that thought. I recognise it absolutely. And, and of course, I think it's doubly true in a very hierarchical, rank-conscious organisation where at least half of the people involved are wearing a uniform. Um, yeah, absolutely, that's the case. That, you know, I, I can be sitting there in my ivory tower at the top of Holborn Police Station thinking that the world is going swimmingly, whereas the, the result is otherwise. And I think, you know, as, as a leader, you have to go out of your way to create the time and the space to have those coffee conversations. And one of those conversations isn't enough. You have to demonstrate repeatedly your willingness to turn up and you have to demonstrate repeatedly your willingness to listen. And you have to demonstrate repeatedly that when someone from the ground floor is brave enough to put their hand up and say, did you know that your response to that is not going to be to bite their heads off, but actually to say thank you. Because as I often used to say to some of my folk, you know, if I don't know about it, I can't do anything about it. 
but if you tell me between us, we might be able to fix it. And I'd hope that the people who work with me and alongside me would say, yeah, we knew that we could be honest with him and that he would respect that honesty. That skill as a leader to admit when they've got something wrong. Can you think of any instances where, you, where you've done that? How long have you got? I, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little story um, to illustrate the principle. A, a few years back, uh, some bright-eyed, bushy-tailed individual in the Met uh, introduced something that they called the Cock-Up Club. Pardon the name. But it was a wonderful idea. The, the whole concept was that you would come and listen to a selection of people from inside and outside of policing whose only purpose for being there was to tell you about the mistakes that they'd made and what they'd learned from them. And I'm still to this day still trying to work out whether to take it as an enormous compliment or a raging insult. But at the very first meeting of the Mets Cock-Up Club, the very first person they asked to stand up and speak was me. And I've made mistakes operationally. I, the mistakes that linger with me, though, are the ones that I made in relation to people, where, where I took decisions that had consequences for people that I hadn't intended. Um, I, I remember very vividly at Camden making a, a, a sort of, well, asking for something to be done. It was in relation to sort of sickness management and we had quite a few people off sick and how could we help them get back to work? And there was a little bit of stick and carrot involved in encouraging people to get back to work. And I drafted a letter and, you know, I, I was clear in my mind with what I was trying to achieve with it, but something broke down along the way. And this letter, which I, I mean, it wasn't an unpleasant letter at all, but it was, it sort of dealt with some uncomfortable truths. And I remember this letter went to, uh, someone who was recovering from cancer and it went to someone who'd recently lost their partner and her partner had died. And I, I, I remember being utterly mortified. The last people in the world that I had wanted this letter to go to were people who were genuinely suffering with some really serious stuff. And in all of my 25 and a half years of policing, given all of the chaos and carnage that I saw, that was the only sleepless night I ever had, the only completely sleepless night where I'd written a letter that had gone to the wrong people and it had hurt people as a consequence. And I was absolutely cut up about it. You know, I, the, those particular two individuals, the only thing I could do was go and find them and sit down with them face to face and sincerely apologize. I'm so sorry, the letter was never meant for you. But yeah, so mistakes you make when good people suffer as a consequence, those are the hardest ones to come to terms with, I think. It was right at the beginning where we talked about purpose and talk about serving others and helping people become their best version. We often forget about serving ourselves. And to use a very well-worn phrase I have, you can't give energy if you haven't got energy. Yeah. And so this is one stop-off point. You said that you didn't, that that was your one true sleepless night. But... Are you good at bookmarking that moment where you know that you need to get some physical rest at the end of a night where, you know, you have had so many experiences, good and bad, to be able to park them? Are you familiar with the oxygen mask analogy from airline safety briefings? I am, yeah, but but please, yeah, feel free to share it. If it's... Well, so so when, when I'm talking now to police officers, particularly about mental health, because it would be impossible to do the job of a police officer for any length of time and to remain untouched by the things that you see and do. 
Um, but so many of us just don't realize that. I, I didn't realize that until it was too late. And you know, I got sick as a consequence. Um, but the instruction given in those airline safety videos at the point where oxygen masks drop down, uh, I often talk about traveling on an airplane with my then eight-year-old daughter sitting next to me. She's nearly 14 now, the youngest one. But the instruction is that even if you've got your eight-year-old daughter sitting alongside you, if the masks drop, you're to fit your own before you make any attempt to fit hers. And I remember the first time I sort of cottoned onto that, and, and actually it made me angry. It went against every fiber of my being. It went against every instinct that I have to protect what's most precious to me. When I first heard it, it seemed to me that whoever was responsible for this safety briefing didn't have a clue what they were talking about. Um, and they'd certainly never been a parent. Uh, and that's what I thought until the moment when I understood that the safety people had, uh, had recognized something that had completely passed me by, which is that my capacity to look after my then eight-year-old daughter is entirely dependent on my capacity to look after myself. I, I'm no use to her if I can't breathe. And what's true in airline safety videos, it turns out, is, is true in life, certainly in policing. You know, I talked right at the start about, you know, so many coppers join simply because they want to help people. But I think that most of us forget at some point along the way that our capacity to help anyone else is entirely dependent on our capacity to help ourselves. I'm no use to you if I can't breathe. And in the end, I was forced to leave policing early as, as the consequence of, of a nervous breakdown, precisely because I hadn't done enough to look after myself, because I hadn't understood the full extent of the demands that policing places on you. I hadn't fully understood that painful privilege that I was talking about earlier. Uh, and so often as a police officer, you become so preoccupied with the business of trying to help everyone else that you forget sometimes that it's you that needs a helping hand. But it turns out that my ability to help you is dependent completely on my ability to help myself. When you were getting to that point, did you have, well, if we rewind a little bit, were you less aware of the fact about have, have serving yourself in those preceding years, it was about, it was all output and you weren't investing as much time in yourself or were there some signs that you either, you didn't see or chose to ignore because, well, your plate was full and there were more pressing things and you were down the list? Some combination of all of the above. So at the time, I was completely oblivious to the fact that anything might be wrong, going wrong. Even when I felt this, whatever it was, go ping in my head, I still didn't occur to me that I might be unwell, that I might actually need medical help. It's the thing is about policing and actually about any vocation, about anything that we feel passionately about. You know, we come up against a challenge, but we don't really stop or, or make sufficient allowance for it. Because in my case, as I often say, there, there was a life to be lived and a family to provide for and a job to be done. And when you're in the police, the calls don't stop coming. And so I kept going. And I recognize now with hindsight, there were a whole series of indications that things weren't entirely well in my body. I, 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 when I'm talking to people, I give three Bs here. The signs were there in my body, in my behavior and in my brain. But at the time I was just too busy to pay sufficient attention to them. And at the time, I didn't understand what they were or what they meant. I had my breakdown in 2013. And at the time, you know, apart from some very 
brave individuals like Stephen Fry and Ruby Wax and those with a much lower public profile, there weren't very many people talking openly about mental health. And as a society, we weren't having an open and honest conversation about mental health. And in policing, we absolutely weren't. You know, just one fact about policing, it's now recognised that most of us in our you know, ordinary lives will encounter severe trauma on something like three or four occasions. Police officers during their working lives will encounter severe trauma on four to six hundred occasions. Three or four times in an ordinary life, four to six hundred times in a policing life. And goodness me, how can that possibly be without consequence? And yet, back in 2013, nobody was talking about that. No, nobody had even mentioned it. it. It was just the job, and we got on with it. So apart from anything else, ignorance was part of the problem. I just didn't know. And so now, having gone through that, and there will be, I'm sure, listeners that a lot of this will ring loudly in their ears, and they'll be on this journey at some point, the body, the behaviour, and the brain, do you mind drilling down a little bit to maybe then some of the signs that you could help give some tools to people for their awareness? And I've got in my head and something that I use a lot in stories around performance, that it's never one big thing that will send you crashing down. It's a number of small things and having those tools to be able to see when you're starting to lose altitude and then be able to adjust might be a benefit to everybody that's listening. My only expertise is in my own story. Um, and even that could be faltering expertise. But I mean, taking those three, body, behavior, brain, I mean, body-wise, um, I was having recurring stomach trouble and recurring lower back trouble, failing to appreciate that both of those signs, things are very specific signs of stress. Uh, at the time, I was 43 years old. So to the extent that I noticed them at all, I just thought they were symptoms of middle age. But beyond either the stomach or the back was the fact that I was just exhausted. And I'd spent you know, over, over 20 years at that point, working shifts and I'd worked on call and, and all sorts of things. So, you know, as a police officer, you get used to being tired, but this was something beyond that. I, I woke up exhausted. I went to work exhausted. I came home and I went to bed exhausted and I, and I just couldn't get ahead of it. Uh, and our, our bodies are extraordinary things. So, you know, there's that book, The Body Keeps the Score and lots of other research and literature out there. You know, if, if we're tuned in to what our bodies are telling us, there's an extraordinary amount of information at our disposal. And I realize now, in a way that I've completely failed to appreciate at the time, my body was trying to say to me, hang on, you need to slow down, you need to stop. But I, I just, I was too busy to pay attention. And that's when my behavior started to change. Um, and in my case, the behavior changes were quite subtle. You know, for some people, it can be quite dramatic. In my case, you know, I barely noticed and very few other people did either. But one colleague pulled me aside to ask if I was all right. And when I asked him why he was concerned, he said to me, it was just, you seem a bit grumpy. I listen, I'm a man of a thousand faults and I'll happily confess to any of them. But, but in my case, grumpiness has never tended to be one of them. So for me, grumpiness was out of character and he noticed, but I didn't notice. Uh, and at home, again, I wasn't, I wasn't bouncing off the walls or anything like that. I, I, but increasingly, I was becoming overwhelmed by the small things. You know, I, I was full beyond the brim with the big stuff of life, trying to be a good husband, trying to be a good dad, trying to be a good police officer, trying to be 
a good human being, I was so full up with that stuff that I had no room left for the smaller things. It might have been something as simple as one of my girls wanting help with her homework or something as daft, quite literally, as a light bulb that needed changing in the house. The thought of needing to change a light bulb was more than I could bear. But I didn't recognise that that was a problem. I just thought that, listen, this is where I am today. This is today's challenge. I just need to fight my way through it. So my body and my behaviour were both by now waving at me, saying, hang on, something's not right here. And still I was too busy and too unaware to slow down and stop and pay attention. And that's when my brain started to take over and I started to experience the most crippling levels of anxiety. I started to struggle sleeping and, and in the end, you know, fell into the deepest, darkest depression imaginable. Uh, and by that stage, it was, it was too late to arrest my fall. But, but looking back now, I realised that the signs were there. My body, my behaviour, my brain. And if I'd better understood them, if I'd been able to recognize them, and if I'd known what to do about them, maybe I wouldn't have got as sick as I did. And maybe I'd still be serving as a police officer now. Thank you for sharing this, John. I know this is of huge value. The question I have in the second part then is the use of counseling and speaking to somebody and the value to that and the advice you'd give to people that are deliberating on whether that's something that they need in their lives at the moment? Well, specifically on the subject of counselling, I mean, I think attitudes towards it have shifted a little bit. But, you know, in the roughy-tufty world of policing, much as I suspect in the roughy-tufty world of professional sport, people's first instinct is often to shy away. Uh, we're still tempted to think sometimes that putting up a hand and asking for help is to display a sign of weakness, whereas actually the truth is completely the reverse. Putting up a hand and asking for help is one of the bravest things that any of us could ever do in our lives. And personally, I think we could all do with a bit of counselling from time to time in one way, shape or form, in one setting or another. I mean, I saw Anna, my counsellor, for five years after my breakdown. And we don't need, we don't all of us need that sort of level of professional involvement over that period of time. But absolutely, it's one of the oldest truths of them all that it's good to talk. And that's particularly important for men to hear that. But actually, it's important for all of us. Uh, you know, and people listening, I, I promise, I promise, promise that there's nothing to be gained by taking the stuff in life that is difficult and burying it away somewhere deep inside and hoping that that's it dealt with. Because it will find its way out in the end. Because it always does. Because we're human beings. We're not machines. So, yeah, please don't suffer in silence. It, it, it really is good to talk. And the second key thing that changed for you was rest. Yeah. Now, rest can mean something as general as sleeping more. But is there anything else that you did to allow your mind and your body to just rest a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, it's not what I did past tense. It's what I continue to do and need to continue to do. Um, you know, I, I don't see Anna every fortnight anymore, but but or even every week anymore. But I still hold firmly to the principle that it's good to talk. Um, and likewise with rest. You know, I, I talked a little bit earlier on about the pace at which the world is moving. I think it was Gandhi who once said, "There is more to life than increasing its speed." But I don't think any of us was listening. And I, I 
struggle to keep up with the pace of the world these days. Um, in fact, I've given up trying and, and I'm a whole lot better as a consequence. And I, it is so profoundly important to take a break, to, to step off the hamster wheel or whatever metaphor you want to use. And, you know, and as you well know, sometimes the taking a break can take the form of, you know, physical, physical exercise, that sort of thing. We, you know, we know that fresh air and physical exercise is good for our mental health. So I, you know, I've got the dog sleeping by my feet somewhere here and I take him out for a walk every day. And that's a really important part of me just staying fit physically and mentally. But you're right. Sometimes resting does need to mean quite literally that a slowing down and a stopping and a switching off and an unplugging. You know, I'm talking to you on my laptop. I've got my mobile phone sitting next to me while I talk to you. And, you know, there's a real risk that, that we can find ourselves in a situation where those things begin to dominate our lives. And actually, sometimes we do just need to stop. Sometimes we do just need to take a breath and allow our minds and our bodies to, to recover and not just do it every now and then when we're feeling on the edge of falling apart, but actually to make it a, a regular essential part of our life's routine, because without it, we, we will just burn out because all of, none of us is invincible. We've all got our limits. And I, and I often think, you know, we, we take better care of our mobile phones than we do of ourselves. You know, we, we can pull out our phones and know at a glance exactly how much battery life they've got, 83% or whatever it is. And we know exactly what we need to do when, when it gets down to 20% or less. And we know exactly what will happen if we don't. You know, our phones will shut down, pack up and stop working. And yet for most of us, most of the time, we don't have anything like that same level of self-awareness. You know, in, in the weeks and months leading up to my breakdown, I had no idea that my battery was at zero. I had no clue that I was running on fumes. Uh, yeah, so there's, there's, there's a takeaway for people. Look after yourself better than you look after your phone. That's a soundbite right there, right there, John. It's the segue into, I only gave you, I think, 24 hours maximum to think about this. So if you don't have any answers to this, then, then cool. But a few things were, one of them was, was a, f a favorite book or books and, and why. Yeah, I can definitely do that. Okay, and then I, well, I was going to hit you with the favorite film or documentary and a quote. Okay, well, I can do all three of them. I think you already know the film, but we'll come back to that in a second. So let's start with the books. I'd, so I would say, without a shadow of doubt, The Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> um, I mean, there are lots of books that I've loved over the years. And given what I do now, we could spend a whole other hour talking about just that. But The Chronicles of Narnia, I, I, I love them as myths as a child. I mean, I just got lost in the world of Aslan and Mr. Tumnus and the Pevensey children. But I love them all over again as, as an adult um, when I picked up some of perhaps the deeper meaning behind some of the allegory. I even, in fact, when I was trying to persuade my wife that I might be the right man for her, um, I, I read them aloud to her as part of our courtship. And then I loved them all over again when I read them to my own children. So uh, sort of at each stage of my life, they've, they've been a kind of recurring joy to me. They're, they're just beautiful stories, beautifully told. Uh, Favourite film, 
again, I, I, I could offer up lots for lots of different reasons, but I always come back round to the Shawshank Redemption. And, and fundamentally, because it's a story of hope, and hope is my favourite word in the English language. And boy, do we need it more now than ever. It's up there for me as well. I, I have United as, and I'm not a fan of Man United, but United as as a word that I love as well. Yeah. Um, we often don't work together enough and have enough community. And so, and you say about your courtship reading, Hugh Jackman every morning, part of his routine, he reads for half an hour the same book with his wife and they take it in turns to, to, to read. And sometimes that will then navigate its way into talking about something totally else, but it will give them that, 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 sacred space where they can have their time protected which i thought was lovely i love the um, sound of that yeah absolutely. yeah it was a, it was another we talked i don't know if we talked about this off air but tim ferris who does brilliant podcasts his one with hugh jackman um i suggest to all our listeners go and have a listen to that because uh there's some there's some great nuggets in it i mean hugh jackman would be welcome to read to me in the mornings that's uh <laughs> yeah he's he's, ter- he's terrific and and the film, same as me. I, th- I don't think I could. Uh, I- I'm with you on that. I don't know if is, I wonder if there's an unofficial fan club we can join or create where we could get members and we can just talk about the Shawshank. And have you read Mark Commode's book about it? No, I haven't. Uh, so but I'm I, going to. Yeah, I recommend that. It's. It, it's uh, I, yeah, I think it's Mark Commode who wrote it. Um, anyway, there's I, there's a lovely book on my shelf about the Shawshank Redemption. Um, yeah, I just think it's a. I just think it's a perfect story, perfectly told. And and it was a, there was a quote you were after as well, wasn't there? And I, I so I I thought a lot about this, and I I thought about various lines from the film. I I thought of Bruce Coburn lyrics. I thought about Martin Luther King. There's just so many, but in the end, I I settled on the one that that actually is uh, engraved around the inside of my wedding ring, or a shortened version of it is. Um, and actually, it's, it's some of the old wisdom. It's a line from the good book, one of the ones that sometimes gets read at wedding services. Uh, and the quote is, and these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That does lead me into my final question, John. From the moment that you started your career in the police and you got the, the baton of honour, to where you are now on your Twitter bio, it says a believer in hope. Are you still a believer in hope? Absolutely, I am. I, but it's you know it's a belief like any belief, I suppose, that gets tested and tried endlessly. You know, I, I was saying to you off air at the start that the world feels pretty heavy at the moment with wars and rumours of wars and pandemics and famines and. You know, there's a lot that, that lies heavy. And I, I wrote in, I think in Blue, my first book, that, that hope sometimes requires an element of stubbornness. Uh, again, to, to revert back to the good book briefly, the, there's a quote said about Abraham that, that against hope, he believed in hope. Um, and sometimes you just need to make a choice to hang on to it in spite of all evidence to the contrary. Uh, And so much of my hope, I suppose, to bring us full circle is found in stories, but in the stories of real people who are living in the real world, who unseen, unrecognized, unheralded by most of the rest of us, 
every single day are doing extraordinary things in classrooms, in youth centers, on street corners, in homes, and in a thousand other places before. You know, if we're prepared to look a little bit harder, there's hope to be found everywhere. I love this chat with John Sutherland from start to finish, but one thing that stood out to me in this second episode was when John spoke about the range of feelings, emotions and skills that are needed and how to recognise when you don't have them. Good leaders all have this ability. They will have levels closing in on mastery standards of knowledge in some specific areas, but in others, well, have enough to know what's important, what to be aware of and where they will need help and expertise. It's vital to have this range as a leader to minimise the blind spots and maximise the opportunities for growth and continued development. John understands that so well from his journey and I would have loved to have worked under him and felt that. Knowing that you are valued by your boss, your captain, your coach, your teacher or your partner, well, it empowers you and gives you confidence in what you bring and value in what you do. You feel seen. To help our vision as leaders, Range in what you know, and then you get support in the areas that you don't know so well. This will help you avoid those short-sighted moments, as well as give others around you better vision to make the collective journey that bit sharper and clearer to see and to feel. Anything John and I mentioned will be available as resources in the show notes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. If you haven't subscribed to the pod, please do so. And if you want to reach out to me, then go to benryan.co.uk or through Instagram or Twitter. This has been Culture and Performance with Ben Ryan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>